so much for just being a congregation that um, knows and loves one another. I, I hope that as we continue to just walk together, that one of the results of the way that we believe God has designed this is that we have this knowledge and compassion for the people that God has brought into this community. And so we're in the second week of a new sermon series that we're calling Sent. And really, here, here's the focus. As we move into a new year, what, what has God created us for? Where has he sent us? What, what's the priority and the purpose these put onto our lives. I really believe that as we look at everything that God's called for us, the single biggest barrier to our spiritual growth right now is our schedules. For most of us, it's not that we're confused about who we are in Christ or what it means to follow God. It's like we just don't have time. And so how do we prioritize the purpose that God has called us to? And last week, we looked at the foundation of everything that makes us who we are. We saw that we were sent to faith in Jesus Christ and that the foundation of everything that we do is that we have this faith that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, that he is the son of God, fully man and fully God, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again three days later, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and because of our faith in him, we have been made new creations. We've been given eternal life and our sins have been forgiven when we've been made a new people under the banner of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the foundation, is God has sent us to faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the question we're gonna answer today, now what? <laughs> okay, we're Christians, what does God want us to do now? What does it mean to follow God? And I think this is a difficult question for us because there has been a broad variety of answers to this question over the last 2,000 years that have ranged from silly to ridiculous to evil, right? Like, so you had in the early church these guys that were called stylites. And what they would do is they were kind of monks, kind of crazy people. They would go and they would say, God told me to, to live on this pillar. So they literally would just live on a pillar. Um, sometimes they would shout things about the, the word of God or the messages of God. Sometimes they'd just sit there. Sometimes they'd eat. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they wouldn't wear clothes. It was a wild deal. But if you ask these guys, why are you doing this? They'd say, well, God told me, right? We had people that say, well, God told me to sack Constantinople on this crusade. God told me to go to the Holy Land and kill people. God told me to burn this person at the stake. God told me to enslave the continent of South America for the glory of his church and Spain, right? Like there's all of these places that people have said, God told me. You could make a strong argument that the phrase God told me has been one of the most destructive in human history. We see that now. God told me to have an affair. He wants me to be happy. God told me to steal from work. He understands the stress that I have. God told me it's okay for me to do whatever I want, regardless of how it affects other people. I know because God told me. God told me that everyone should give me money because he wants me to buy a new private jet. That actually happened recently. You can Google that. God told me has a very checkered track record. So how do we manage this tension between what we know to be true, that God is active and speaks to us, that he has called us to a life with a purpose, and this very murky track record the church seems to have with this idea of doing what God told us to do? How do we do that? This is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what it means that we were sent to follow Jesus. Where were we sent today? We're focusing on this reality. We were sent to follow. So how do we do that? 
How do we follow Christ? What does that mean? What does God want us to do? Here's how we're going to do that. When we're going to be in 1 John today, here's what we're going to see. There's this error, I think, that we can fundamentally make when we ask ourselves this question of what God wants us to do. And the error is this. We primarily look at our actions. That's the first place we look. Is well, What am I doing? What does God want me to do? If I want to follow Christ, I need to start with what I want to do. And we, we kind of enter this space where that takes us to these two poles, depending on how God has built you, right? There's people that when they think about what God wants them to do, they say, okay, what do I know? And we go to knowledge. I need to know as much as I can so I can do this the right way. These people are probably firstborn children, right? Like they have all of their socks organized and they're people that just really want to lean into the knowledge of what they've been called to do. Other people, it's, well, how do I feel? How do I feel? These people are maybe middle children. Maybe they're Enneagram 4, right? Like they, they love art. They're very creative. Like what, what, is, what are my feelings telling me? And neither of those are bad because God's created us to have both of those capacities to use. However, it misses this key component that we're going to see in Scripture. It, it misses our desires, there's this theologian um, named James K.A. Smith, and he's written extensively on this concept of our desire in worship. He says the mistake we make is that we think that we're either brains on a stick or that we're feeling. And he said when we do that, we miss this core part of our humanity that we are desiring creatures with loves. And our desires are going to be our loves. And, and Augustine wrote about this as well, that our loves and our desires are going to be the primary engine that directs our lives. What shapes us, what motivates us, what we follow, what we desire, who we grow into are going to be driven by what we love and what we desire. So here, here's what we're going to see in Scripture today as we try to figure out how we follow Jesus is you will always do what you love. You will always do what you love. What you love is going to drive everything. That's the first point that we've got here. And this is the overarching idea. What we do is going to reveal what we love. And so instead of looking at our actions, we need to look at our love and our desires. And so when we look at what it means to follow Jesus, we're going to see how John directs our attention to our desires before he even touches our actions. So we are going to pick it up in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 3. Here's, here's what we're missing, because you never want to just pluck a verse out of thin air and start to use it. That usually ends with people waiting on a spaceship in robes, right? So what we want to do is look at the entirety of the context of what we're talking about. The first section of this letter all John's really doing is reminding people what we talked about last week. The foundation of who we are is built on our faith in Jesus Christ and how he forgives our sins. Then he goes in to talk to them about what it means to follow Jesus. So this is his now what, right? So he's gone and said, you guys know that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. Now here's what you do next. In verse 3 he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Okay, so let's look here and pause for a second. Because when we first read this, this can tend to feel like um, an indictment. This can tend to feel like an accusation, and it takes us to this place of fear. I don't believe that is in line with the context of this letter, because he just got done telling us, when you sin, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ. This is not a call to sinless perfection. There's not that expectation. In fact, when you read in chapter 1, he actually says, anybody that says they don't have sin is a liar and doesn't know God. 
So what this can't be is a call that if you sin, you're not really a Christian. That just can't be what this says because he just said everybody sins, right? So what is he saying? He's saying that if we have no thirst or desire to obey the commands of God, then we don't know him and we are living a lie. And so it's this concept of anyone who has actually known and experienced God is going to be driven by a love for him that's going to drive them towards wanting to obey his commandments. That there would be a growth in maturity and obedience, a knowledge and a desire. And so what are his commandments? The word commandments here is not like pointed at a specific set of commands. A lot of people would say, oh, well, this is talking about, you know, the Ten Commandments. Probably not because they actually had a word for that that they used and that's not here. This is really just this general idea of God's design and commandments that he's given his people. He says, if you disregard God's commandments, it really just reveals that we don't know him. So how do we wrestle with this text as it helps us follow Jesus? Well, here's what we have to ask. If we don't follow God's commandments, what is that revealing about what we love? I think one of the other challenges we have with this is this is a verse that when we do read it, we really like to project it outwards, right? And say, hmm, do they, do they, are they in? Are they out? I don't know. You know, I only know them through my interactions with them online or at a distance. But I, I think what we should do is use this to make some analysis on their immortal soul. We love to go out with this. I don't think that's the design of this text. Um, really, I think the design of this text is to invite us into a place of humble reflection where we use this like a mirror, like a guardrail. Okay, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. How do I know I'm following Jesus? Well, okay, am I keeping his commandments? Am I keeping his commandments? Well, if I'm not, what does that say about me? It, it says that I don't know him. And so there's a couple of different ways that we can examine that concept. I don't believe that he's saying, if you sin, you're not a Christian. Because again, we have chapter one. Here's what I think he's saying. And this is, this is something that Paul writes about in other places where he says, it's like a man who looks in the mirror and then turns away and forgets what he looks like. I think if we're believers, if we're Christ followers, what this should do is this should be a mirror that exposes those places in our hearts where we've drifted into love of something else. Um, you know, for a lot of us, when we look at our disobedience, it's, it's almost always driven by a love and a desire, right? And so regardless of what that disobedience is, when we hold this up like a mirror, what we see is that there can be a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we act. And in that disconnect, if we will, if we'll sit in that and explore that with humility and vulnerability before the Lord, what usually is going to happen is you're going to expose some idols and you're going to see, hmm, why did I lose my temper there with that person? What is underneath me that I am desiring in that moment? Why did I lie to that person? Why did I go check out this kind of material on the internet? Why did I pursue this addiction? Why am I continually spending money thinking I'm going to find peace in consumerism? What, what are the desires that are driving me to these places that I believe that salvation is going to be found? What, what is it that's taking me there? So, so what is shaping me that is not of God is another way to ask that question. What is forming my heart that is building these desires that aren't of the Lord, but that are of something else? So for me, I grew up, um, I didn't, I didn't uh, fit in well. Um, so only child, um, single mom, 
Lots of Star Trek outfits way beyond when anyone would advise an adolescent to wear them, okay? So for me, there was always this desire to fit in and be accepted and just feel good enough, you know? So as I got older, I started playing hockey. And not like, I mean, this was like for fun. I wasn't like major junior or anything. This was fun. But I was good at it, right? Like, um, it, it turns out that hockey is a place where unchecked aggression and a penchant for drinking more than you should are celebrated. And so for the worst parts of me, it was a really good fit. And so what started to happen is I started to be formed and catechized by this subculture that exists around the game of hockey. And I know we're in the South, so you may not know this, and this may surprise you, but the commands of God and the subculture that hockey tends to direct you to don't usually line up, okay? I know, I know that's shocking. And so what I found was there was a point in my life where I wasn't shaped by the Word of God. I was shaped by the subculture, right? The way that I spoke, the values, what I chased, how I dressed, what I thought success looked like, what made me who I am and gave me value didn't come from the Lord. It came from a game where toothless, angry men are chasing each other with sticks, right? And so why was that? Why was that? What was that desire in me that was revealed that was taking me back to this consistent disobedience to what I knew to be true? For me, it was the desire for acceptance. Hey, here's a place where people felt like I was good enough and even celebrated, you know, some things. And so there was this strong feeling of worth and acceptance I was getting. So for me in that moment, that worth and acceptance became an idol because it was more important than being obedient to who God had called me to be. It was meeting this need I had for salvation that scripture would say your worth and acceptance doesn't come from what you do or how you perform. It, it comes from who you are in Jesus Christ. You don't need all the other stuff. And so for me, it had to get a point where this, this culture couldn't be the thing that was driving and defining me anymore. And I'm not saying like, don't play a sport. That's not what he says, right? What he says is that if we aren't obeying and attending to the commandments of God, then we're acting like we don't know him. It's revealing that there's a disconnect. And some of this too, I think we do want to take literally because I think the other aspect he's speaking against is this idea where you say, oh, I'm a Christian. I prayed a prayer. I'm good. Now I can do whatever I want. He's saying that's not Christianity. He's saying, you don't actually know Jesus. If it's like, oh, I prayed a prayer one time at camp, I'm good now, right? It's like, he's, no, that, that's not really what happens. It's like, that's not really what we're calling you to. And that makes us nervous because like, wait a second, isn't that a workspace salvation? Isn't that legalism? It's not, because again, he's not, he's not talking about your actions saving you. What's he talking about? He's talking about your desires. And he's going to expound on this a little bit because if we're saved by faith, then what's the role of works? Why does this matter? So he's going he's gonna to talk about this a little bit here. So if we say, we, excuse me, <laughs> but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So here's what he's saying. Here's, here's the role of works in our faith, that they are an expression of the perfected love of God in us. That's a beautiful way of calling us into the life that Christ has sent us to. This is a great way to look at what it means to follow Jesus, that when we are obeying the commandments of God is an expression of God's love perfected in us. And here's why. Because when we are attentive to the commands of God, our life is formed to look like Jesus's, right? And attention to the commands of God are gonna form a Christ-likeness. He says this in verse six, anyone who abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. 
He's saying that if you abide in Jesus, and the word abide is a beautiful picture. Actually, half of the time that that word is used in the New Testament, it was written by John. He seems to love this picture of us abiding or living in Jesus, that this relationship with God is feeding our souls and growing our hearts and affections, that it's forming us. He's saying, listen, when you are abiding in Christ, the natural outworking of that love and knowledge and affection is going to resemble a life that looks like Jesus. When your affections, when your love is appropriately pointed towards God, it is going to shape your actions. It's going to form you. Saying you're going to be formed to look like Jesus. God forms us through our obedience. I, when I think about this idea of being formed, I always go back to um, being a kid and going into my grandpa's um, gun room. And so my granddad, um, single mom, only grandchild, my, my, my grandparents were in many ways the primary people who were with me. Um, when mom was at work, I'd be with them. And they would, you know, just always be there. And so I remember after my granddad retired from IBM, he started gunsmithing as a hobby just because he loved to hunt. Um, and I know guns are touchy, and so I, I don't want to be, be uh, insensitive to that. But as a kid, this was just kind of my world. His grandpa had his gun shop, and I always walk in, and he would have these blocks of wood that he was making the stocks of these hunting rifles out of. And so when they would come and he'd have them all laid out on the workbench so you'd see the different places that they were in the process. Over here you just have this brand new chunk of wood. It was beautiful wood. It was just a block. It was a big square of wood and he'd maybe he would have traced some of the outlines of the stock into that that he was going to make and there were all different kinds of wood and different shades and colors and patterns and then the next phase of it is he'd actually start to carve into that block to get something that resembled a stock and he used to let me kind of hold those and play with them and stuff and, and so you'd start to see the shape of what this block was going to become start to emerge. It was a little rough still. Um, it was still this raw wood and then the next step is he'd sand that down so it was smooth and then sometimes even add some detailing to that a little bit, some ornamentation to make it unique. And then after that, he would apply some varnishes and oils and seals. And so it would be able to withstand the rain or anything like that. And, and you would see this journey and this transformation into what truly in many ways was a masterpiece, right? And I think when, when you see that process play itself out, whether it's that or stone cutting or really any kind of craftsmanship that you want to substitute into that, it takes you back to where we were last week in Ephesians, where, where we see that we are God's masterpiece, that he is formed and shaped. And so what happens in our lives when we're attentive, when we are following and abiding, when we are directing our love towards our Father— our actions begin to get shaped and formed and, and, and our rough edges are smoothed out and those broken places are healed and redirected and, and, and the understanding of how we were built starts to emerge in us. And so this is why our works matter. It's not that they save us. It's that they're an overflow of the faith that already has. And so when we talk about spiritual practices, there's formation and refining that happens. Remember this year as a church, we said we wanna be a church that prays like our life depends on it. When we pray, God is forming our hearts. He is increasing our understanding of who he is, his worthiness of our love, the way that he directs and guides us, right? What we ask for, those realities are shaped by the Father as we go to him in prayer. That's why we want to be people that pray. When we're in scripture, when we're studying God's word and seeking to understand his commandments, we begin to see his holiness and his worth and his transcendence. We begin to, in our hearts through his spirit, understand why God's way is actually better. 
that his commandments aren't restrictive. They're actually life-giving, right? And, and our affections and desires begin to be able to see the bitterness and emptiness that takes place when we pursue the things of the world and we begin to see the life and vitality and peace that is cultivated in our hearts by God's spirit when his word comes alive in us. Okay, and so as we're doing that, he's shaping and forming and sanding and creating a masterpiece that reflects his love to the world around us. That's why I love this phrase. This is what it looks like for the love of God to be perfected in someone. Our faith is personal, but it's not individual because the perfection, the goal of God's love is to be something that shines out and affects the world around it. You see Jesus talk about this. He says, you're gonna be like a city on a hill, a light that people can see. You're gonna be like salt that flavors and preserves the earth. Our faith is going to be felt and seen by the world around us as God perfects us as we chase obedience. When we serve, right? God's called us to serve. He's called us to be generous. He's called us to be kind. He's called us to bring peace to the world around us. He's called us to forgive. As we engage and obey those commandments, our lives shape to look like Jesus. So when we say, we are sent to follow Jesus. We're to live a life like Jesus lived. We're to live a life like Jesus lived. He was more than an example. He was the son of God who died on the cross for our sins. A function of his ministry was to model for us the way obedience plays out in a broken world. He did it perfectly. We can't do that. We need his grace and his forgiveness when we stumble, but we have a picture. And as we're obedient to him, our lives begin to look like Jesus's life looked. And so as we say, we're sent to follow. Well, how do we follow Jesus? We're obedient to the Father. We're obedient to the Father. We live in this joyful obedience to this life that God has created us for. And it's hard and it's messy and we can't do it by ourselves. But as we begin to do what God has asked us to do, he is refining us and perfecting us. So how do we follow Jesus? Well, we're obedient. We're obedient. So what does that look like? How do we know? He's going to give us, he's going to give us a big kind of picture of, of, I think, the best metric. You want to know if you're being obedient to God? Here, here's how you know. In verse 7, he says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The true light is the gospel. It's come into the world and is continuing to spread at this point throughout the ancient world so people are understanding the gospel. He says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness blinds his eyes. He says, hey, here's, here's an easy metric to know if you are following Jesus, if you're being obedient. Do you love your brother? Well, who's my brother? Do you remember when Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor? Very similar concept. And the answer, when you really unpack what Jesus said, was the person that you think is the least worthy of your love is your brother. It's that simple. So when John's writing, loving your brother, what he's saying is, do you love the people around you? Like, do you love people? If we don't love people... That is like a warning light on our car. 
something is not the way that it should be. He says anybody that says they love God but doesn't love people doesn't actually love God. It's not possible. And really, if you remember, this is a very clear echo of the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus would summarize the law, he was a great teacher. People would always come to him and ask the same question. How do we know what God wants us to do? What does he really want us to do? Can we eat meat? Um, if, if, a guy, if, a, if a woman gets married seven times, which guy is she going to be married to in heaven? How can I have a child? They're constantly asking Jesus to interpret and teach the law so they can do what God wanted them to do, constantly. And Jesus always summarizes the law this way. The commandments of God are summarized like this constantly. He quotes the Shema in Deuteronomy where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He says, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you want to follow God? Do two things. Love God and love people. Love God and love people. That is a summary of the law. If you are doing those two actions, you are following the life that God has laid out for us. Do you love God and do you love people? See, people are such an indicative standpoint as to how our heart condition is looking because they are so precious to our Father in heaven. And so if, if, we're, if we're people that say we're Christians, but we have a track record of not loving people, and I don't just mean the people like us and the people that agree with us. Jesus is actually pretty clear that loving our enemies is a requirement. And so if we don't love people, then we're showing that our affections and our love for the Father are not where they should be. And so how are we doing it following God? Well, do we love people? That's it. We're sent to follow Jesus. If we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to radically love people in ways that are difficult and uncomfortable. Because we like to decide who's worthy of love and who's not, right? Like, we all have our own score system, okay? Um, but we have this really bad habit as people of splitting the world up into those who are worthy of love and, and those who aren't. And unfortunately, it happens in the church too sometimes, right? But Jesus is really clear. We've been sent to follow. And so that means that we love people. And if we're not, then we're not telling the truth about how much we love God. So here's the good news. Because we hear that, we're like, man, I, there's some people I don't love. And I get it. I told you guys a story about the student driver on my way to church. Just drive faster. Just always drive faster, okay? Like, it's not going to be something we're perfect at. But the good news for us in this roadmap of what it looks like to be people who have been sent to follow, we have this reminder and this foundation that John takes us back to. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, whose death was sufficient to forgive the sins of the world. He says, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. So John already knows that we don't do this perfectly because he didn't do this perfectly. Only one person did, and that was Jesus Christ. So as we are pursuing being a people that follow Christ, how do we make this a priority? I think really we see a roadmap here, right? Like we have a mirror that holds up the state of our hearts. Are there places that we love more than God? We have a father who has forgiven us of that sin. We need to be aware of that sin, confess and repent of those spaces where we have loves that are not our father, where we have been taken into these places where we're not obeying commandments. We repent. We repent. Second place we go, if we want to prioritize following Jesus, is making the time for these spiritual disciplines that call us into a deep obedience. Not because they save us, right? But because we believe that our faith has called us into a new life. 
we make time for spiritual disciplines. We make time for prayer. You will always make time for what you love, right? I guarantee you, you will make time for what you love. If Arsenal are playing, I'm going to find a screen. It might be my iPad. It might be my phone. It might be these. I don't know if it's a really big game, but I'm going to make time to watch because it's important that you will always make time for what you love. So we've got to make time and carve out space for us to engage in these disciplines like prayer, scripture, service. Here's the third thing that we want to do is we want to love people. And we're going to talk more about this next week because next week we're going to see that God has called us into community. He's called us into community. And so we're going to look at that next week and say, how do we do this well? What does it look like for us to be a place that does this well? It's a really easy roadmap that he's laid out for us where he's called us in to follow him. And it's a safe place to do that because where we're imperfect, we have the forgiveness of a father. And so today, as a church, we're being invited by our Father to being a people that follow Jesus. Let's continue to strive to be a church that takes this seriously and say, we want to be a community who love God more than we love anything else, and we want to love each other. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us more than just an abstract concept, but that you've called us into a life, a life that brings peace and hope, a life that shines light into the darkness of a broken world. God, a life that is bent on reflecting your goodness and loving the people that you've put in front of us. So help us be a people that can look at our life and say, God, where have we left the commandments that you've given us? Where have we loved other things more than you? God, help us to be people that can make time and prioritize the ways that you've called us to seek your commandments because we love you and help us, help us love people, God. Help us be known for the way that we love one another because ultimately you are known for the way you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.